Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Okay, so yes, we're in this story of uh, Peter, um, really closing out the book of John. We've been in this book for a long time. Uh, just engaging with uh, Jesus preparing his disciples for mission. And this story of the commissioning of Peter, or the recommissioning of him, the reinstatement of him in his ministry, is really John's uh, way of giving us uh, the Great Commission. Uh, in the other Gospels, we get this Great Commission story where Jesus says, you know, go you into all nations, uh, preach the Gospel, uh, teach people to obey everything I've commanded you, make disciples of all nations, all of this kind of sort of moment of, of commissioning, and then Jesus is, of course, taken up to heaven. And what John does here for us is he gives us that sense of commissioning, but through the lens of the life of Peter and through a deeper conversation with Peter and through uh, the pain of what Peter uh, went through with his own failure uh, and his denial of Jesus and all of that, coming back through that sort of pain into a place of wholeness, into a place of health, and, uh, and coming into a place of being ready to uh, do and be and fulfill uh, the calling of God on his life. And so when we looked at this uh, last week, we sort of asked ourselves this question, you know, where am I at on this curve? Peter had this moment in his life where he was sort of full of confidence, uh, ready to go, uh, anxious to achieve, uh, confident about who he was. And then, of course, as he presents all of this to Jesus, Jesus knowing uh, the truth of Peter's journey and where he's at kind of says, hey, Peter, that's not quite who you are. You're, you're not going to be able to be who you thought you were going to be. You're actually going to deny me, and you're going to hear a rooster crow once you've done it three times. And you're going to have to walk through the grief of that. And uh, then ultimately, after uh, meeting that rooster, we talked about that last week, you need to uh, meet the rooster before you get the restoration, right? We all have these moments in our lives where uh, we actually encounter and we come to grips with our weakness, with our, with our failing, with our brokenness, and uh, come to God in a new way, uh, in a humble way, saying, yeah, I, I need to approach you, Jesus, not with all of the things I have, not with all of the things I know, not coming to present you with my glorious gifts and my wonderful personality. Uh, we come to Jesus in a, in, a, in a more humble way and say, hey, Jesus, who do you want us to be? And, and then it's from that point of having heard the rooster crow in our lives, knowing that we're not all that in a bag of potato chips, uh, that Jesus begins to restore us and release us and, uh, and call us forward. And so for... Uh, Simon Peter, uh, he has this moment of the rooster crowing. and We're seeing an image there, just an artist's representation of, of that moment of the denial of Jesus, where he's gathered around this uh, coal fire. Uh, we see it in John chapter 13. Uh, Jesus has sort of said, you're going to deny me three times. And by the time we get to John 18, uh, Jesus is at trial, and uh, Peter is just sort of hiding out and kind of saying, hey, I... I, uh, I'm not with that guy. He's, he's, some, he's, he's, he's somebody I'm not really associated with. Uh, my life is not tied to him. And he's sort of blending in with the soldiers, warming his hands under the coal fire, and, uh, and wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And ultimately, of course, in Peter's life, this rooster crows, the denials. And what we're going to do now is go from that moment of the rooster and walk through the restoration uh, conversation 
that Jesus has with, uh, with Peter. Uh, that whole conversation uh, really begins in John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 14. And you're just seeing an artist's representation there of a moment where uh, after the resurrection, after uh, Jesus has uh, appeared to the disciples a couple of times in the upper room, uh, appeared to um, Thomas in the upper room, uh, and eventually, we don't know whether it's a few days later or a week later, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples uh, on the beach. Uh, in that time frame, when Jesus was resurrected, uh, in that time frame between uh, the moment of, um, of, of Peter's denial of him, Peter just goes kind of silent in this story. We see that he walks away uh, from Jesus feeling grieved, uh, feeling like he's um, full of pain. We talked about the meaning of that word, uh, that, that crying out, that sense of brokenness, that audible sense of hurt that Peter feels as he walks away. And in those moments, uh, between the restoration and, and looking back at that moment by the fire, Peter is just all of a sudden silent from the story. And it's, it's just interesting, right? We see the encounter of uh, the disciples with Peter in the upper room, and Peter's not mentioned. The second encounter happens with Thomas, and Peter isn't mentioned. Uh, we see him run. Uh, he's, he's run down to the tomb. He's run to see uh, what's going on there when the women come and say that they saw that, you know, the, the tomb was empty. We see that John believed, but we see no reaction from and so we just kind of imagine that he's in this sort of place of despondency. He's interacting with uh, the disciples. He's, he's still hanging with them. They're his friends. But by the time we get to uh, John chapter 21, um, Peter's coming back in the story. But they've made it up to Galilee at this point. They've kind of wandered away from Jerusalem. They've wandered away from the, the center of their ministry. And, and it says simply this in verse um, in verse. Uh, uh, 3 of John 21, Peter just says this, he says, this is his first line since the, his denial is, I'm going fishing. Like, I'm going fishing. Like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, we're seeing him pop into rooms, uh, but, but we don't know what we're supposed to do with our lives. Let's wander into the country, and I'm going fishing. And it says the disciples decide to go with him, and they catch nothing. So you can kind of imagine this despondent Peter wrestling with a sense of, of fruitlessness and wrestling with a sense of pain and, and frustration. And then as they're out fishing on the lake, uh, they, they look into shore and they see, I don't know, you know how you, you look at, at something in the distance and you're, you're not close enough to really recognize what's going on, but there's a man sitting on the shore and there's a fire that's placed there. And, and this guy calls out to them while they're out fishing and says, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. And I think maybe John's ears perked up a little bit at this moment. Peter shows no sign of recognition. And they throw their net on the other side of the boat, and all of a sudden there's this massive catch of fish. And still, it's not Peter that realizes what's going on here. This is Peter who has said, you will be a fisher of men. He, he's not putting it together. And in the story, it's actually John who says, Peter, it's the Lord. 
Like Peter, Peter does not have any expectation at this point of restoration. He doesn't have any expectation of healing. He doesn't have any expectation of being involved in the future that Jesus had planned for him. And suddenly when he realized that Jesus is there, he, he's excited, he is, is, is called, he, he wants to be there. And it says this, it says he takes his cloak and he puts it on and jumps into the water. Now, how many of you get dressed before you go swimming? <laughs> That's a bit of an unusual detail to be in this story, isn't it? Peter puts on his cloak. He'd been there working. They would often take their robes off to work. They're hauling in the nets. Of course, the robes are going to get in, a way, in the way. They're going to get wet. And so Jesus is going to uh, have some interaction with Peter. And, and I think what's happening in Peter, maybe there psychologically, is he's, he's probably just feeling shame. Like he's not going to show up in front of Jesus undressed. He's not going to show up in front of Jesus as a sweaty workman. He's going to show up and present himself the best way he can, and he jumps in the water, and he goes. And it says that Jesus is there. He's, he's made some bread on the fire. He's toasting it there, and he's made some fish. So we know Jesus has already been fishing. He didn't need them to catch any fish for this breakfast. Jesus had already got some. I would like to know what fishing uh, looks like for Jesus. Here, fishy, 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 fishy. Like, how's that work? The things are jumping out of the water. Maybe he bought it from a local vendor. I don't know. But Jesus has got this, this fish, and they're roasting on the shore. And the disciples are coming in. Peter's not helping the disciples at all. He's abandoned them, dealing with this massive catch of 100 and whatever it is, 53 fish. I forget what that is exactly in the text. Um, and he comes to the fire, and he's sitting with Jesus, and says they basically have breakfast together. We talked about that moment in communion. What, what that must have been like for them to just get to sit by the shore and have breakfast with Jesus again, this relational moment. But I think what you can imagine in the moment of the story is uh, this weird awkwardness that Peter must be feeling. Right? He is not feeling connected to Jesus. He is not feeling like he has intimacy. He's feeling a shame of wanting to be covered up. He's feeling uncomfortable. And I imagine the rest of the disciples are kind of able to read the room. Right? And this is sort of how I imagine it. And this isn't in the text, but this is sort of how I kind of see that unfolding. They're having breakfast, they're passing pieces of fish around, somebody's got a wine skin, somebody's got some water, and they're hanging out, and sort of eventually, you know, the disciples are picking up on the cues that there's something happening here between Jesus and Peter. Maybe Jesus gives them a look like, get out of here. And maybe Peter is like looking awkward and strange. And I can just sort of imagine uh, the disciples sort of drifting off away from this charcoal fire. And just sort of saying, okay, I think uh, maybe uh, i got to go tend, take care of the nets and wash the nets. Uh, uh, i got to go pull the boat up a little further on shore. I'm going to town to get some chips. We needed some fries with this fish. Um, whatever it is. And they just kind of all drift off. And all of a sudden we have this moment where Jesus and Peter are seated by the fire. Maybe John is there, he's recording the story, but it seems to me like this is an intimate conversation that is happening, obviously, between a very uncomfortable Peter and Jesus, and it's intimate, and, uh, and the conversation goes like this, and this is what we have in the text. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, apologies. Uh, he said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him again, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this is the conversation they had. And I thought rather than looking at it uh, verse by verse and sort of unpacking it that way, what I wanted to do was put it on the screens for you with just the conversation between Jesus and Peter in those three iterations of the conversation, those three questions, those three answers, those three commissions. And I want us to just notice and observe some things that are happening in that. Uh, I should also, sorry, I missed verse 19. He said, he said this to show about what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. And so here we are with these uh, three sort of encounters, these three conversations. You see Jesus speaking, Simon answer. Jesus commissions. Jesus asks, Simon answers. Jesus commissions. And the first thing we notice when we look at that is that in all three cases, Jesus refers to uh, Peter as son and son of John. Son and son of John. And, and I probably, uh, it wasn't really until about 9 o'clock last night when I, when I realized that something different was happening here. And I've been looking at this text really for weeks and read like you know, six or seven commentaries on it. And, and nobody had seen this and I hadn't seen it. It's just something I missed. But this is the only time uh, in the book of John uh, apart from before Jesus commissioned Peter, where he's referred to as Simon and not Simon Peter. So what Jesus is doing is he's going back to uh, Peter's pre-commissioning identity. And he's referring to him, in all three cases again, as Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. He's taking him back to his place of understanding where he was born, understanding who he started out to be. And I think there's a couple of things happening in here. Um, one, I think that Peter has probably given up on calling himself a rock at this point. I think Peter has probably given up on this identity that he once had, this identity of being uh, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And in his own heart and in his own, own mind, even though maybe John and some of the other disciples are still calling him Simon Peter, I think Simon in his heart says, that's not who I am. I, I, I fail. I'm, I'm Simon, son of John. And Jesus is so gracious and so gentle. And I think he does this with us as we wrestle with our calling, as we wrestle with what he wants us to do and to be in the world is Jesus is just graciously meeting Simon where he's at. He's saying, I know that you feel like you have fallen and that you have fallen far. 
I understand that you've given up. I, I understand that you feel broken. I understand that you've disqualified yourself. Uh, and in his heart, he's saying, I remember, though, who I've called you to be. And that's the conversation that they're about to walk through. And what happens in the conversation, I think this is, this is amazing, is that this moment of, of Peter being called Simon, son of John, this is the last time in the Bible where the word Simon is ever associated with Peter. Something happens in this conversation, starting with this core identity, starting with this beginning place, starting with this, hey, I remember who you were, Simon, son of John. They walk through this conversation of commissioning and in these few simple phrases arrive at a place where the identity of Simon is gone and the identity of the rock is all that is left. In this moment of redemption, Jesus utterly transforms Simon and makes him a new person and makes him new. <coughs> And I think that is something that we need to take on board. Our calling, our identity, our sense of chosenness, our sense of value doesn't come from self-discovery. It doesn't come from our history. It doesn't come from who we were. It doesn't come from a sense of self-protection or self-validation or any of those things. Our sense of identity ultimately comes when Jesus bestows a new name on us, instills a new sense of being on us, instills a new sense of calling in our hearts. The redemptive power of God is the only power in the universe that can ultimately transform your identity. Amen. Nothing else we do can change us. Our identity is bestowed. Our identity comes as a gift of grace. Our identity comes by the power of God transforming us and making us new. Our identity comes at the cross. And there's nowhere else that that can happen for us. And so a devotional moment for us. How often have we looked at our lives and said, this is who I think I am. This is who I think I ought to be. This is uh, who I, I want to present myself as. Uh, this is who I feel like I am. When we need to be coming to God and saying, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And what Jesus does with Simon Peter here is he says, you are not Simon anymore. We're going to walk through this conversation and you are going to be who I've called you to be. We see this reflected in the Old Testament, him calling his people by name. Isaiah 41, 1-3, But now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Hosanna. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. It's his identity. For us, who he wants us to be, who he calls us to be, 
That's what takes us through the river and that's what takes us through the fire. Our own identities don't float. They sink like stones. And so how do you listen in your life to know who Jesus is calling you to be? What is that whisper of the voice of the Holy Spirit in you saying, rise up, child of God, you're an evangelist. Rise up, child of God, care for my sheep. Rise up, child of God, hear my word and let it transform you and speak the word that's coming to you. Rise up in care, rise up in love, rise up and be the church, oh church. Your identity isn't failure. Your identity isn't brokenness. Your identity isn't this host of things which we tie to ourselves and and call ourselves. Our new name comes from him. And the next thing we notice when we look at the text is uh, this phrase. The very first time Jesus asks this question, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he is establishing himself as Peter's primary relationship. He's establishing himself at the center of Peter's life. He's establishing himself at the center of uh, Peter's calling. He's centering himself at the center of Peter's purpose. He's establishing priorities. And we've seen Jesus do this before in awkward and uncomfortable ways. In Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father and wife, or mother, does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Oh, Lord Jesus, say nicer things, please. <laughs> Could you just, can we just have sweet baby Jesus again? Do we have to have like, Jesus who's telling me to prioritize himself above everything? What, do, what, do the, what does that do to you? What do you do when you hear Jesus saying that to you? Do you love me more than these? Do you love him? This is very awkward, very uncomfortable. Parents, do you love Jesus more than your kids? Do you make decisions with Jesus at the center? Or do you make decisions with your children at the center? Kids, do you make decisions with your parents at the center or with Jesus at the center? Now, the whole purpose here, what Jesus is doing, is he's ultimately commissioning Peter and calling him to ministry. He's ultimately saying, like, you're going to lay down your life for your sheep. You're going to give them everything. You're going to pour out your life for the church. You're going to be highly invested in others. You're going to be highly invested in brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children. Those You're going to pour out your life for the other humans that are around you. But... I get to be first. Jesus gets to be first. Our families can become idols. Our children can become idols. Our businesses can become idols. Our vocations can become idols. And Jesus is simply saying, I want to be first. And in reality, 
that call uh, to minister to him first, that call to worship him first, that call to love him first, is ultimately what makes it possible to love anybody else. If we don't have a vibrant, empowered relationship with Jesus that is heart-to-heart with Him and face-to-face with Him, where we are seeking Him, where we are filled with the Spirit, where we are worshiping with His community, our love for other humans is ultimately going to end up being weak and shallow and selfish. If we don't have a vibrant, loving relationship with Jesus, everything we try to do for humans on our own strength will be lacking empowerment and will ultimately be marked by our own selfish agendas. Right? Yeah. It actually won't work. Our ministry to the poor won't work if worship of Jesus is at the, isn't at the center. Our care for our families won't work if a worship of Jesus isn't at the center. We need to have him. And so while we're called to serve, uh, we're called to love uh, the humans around us, the first fruits of our love belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why we gather uh, for, sometimes this, doesn't this, like this whole thing, the sound system, the lights, uh, the building, doesn't this sometimes seem like almost foolish and decadent? Like I could just go and, and uh, I could just go and care for the poor and I could just read my Bible by myself and I could just feel warm thoughts about God. This seeming uh, decadence of gathering to worship, gathering to sing songs directly to God, uh, being on our faces, relating heart to heart and face to face directly with Him, not just loving Him by loving the other humans, but having a place in our lives where it is absolutely and only and completely about Him, completely about relationship. If we don't have that, uh, we're missing something. This act of communal love, this act of pouring ourselves out, this act of singing songs, this act of worship, this act of gathering with the body is not decadence at all. It is simply uh, placing our affections rightly. It's placing our affections rightly where they belong with him first. We do this as individuals, we do this in our devotional lives, but we have to do this also as a community. That's what we say when we look at the church and the three purposes of the church. We have a ministry to God, we have a ministry to one another, we have a ministry to the world. We cannot neglect our ministry to God. We cannot neglect our ministry to Jesus. We cannot neglect pouring ourselves out for him directly. Now, the end result is we ultimately pour ourselves out for the humans in radical and powerful ways. But it starts with him. And so Peter is, is, is hearing this question. And it's asked, do you love me more than these? And he answers, yes, uh, you know that I love you. And I think there was a temptation in that moment for Peter to just kind of say, Hey, uh, I, like, go revert to old Peter. Yeah, like, I would be one of the greatest of the disciples. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm the rock man. And Peter just doesn't go there. He doesn't say, yeah, I, I love you more than these. Or, no, no, I, I'm not sure. He just says, Lord, you know how I love you. You know I love you. And what he's doing in that moment is he's taking this 
aspect of relationship, this aspect of his love, this aspect of intimacy with God, and saying, how do you perceive this? How do you perceive this that I have? You see it in a certain way, and what's important with Jesus is how you see it. And that's what we notice the next thing in the text is that as Peter is asked, you know, do you love me? Peter doesn't give a list of how he loves Jesus. He doesn't give a list of the things he's done. He doesn't give a list of uh, the whys. He doesn't give a list of the attributes of Jesus. He doesn't give a list of his activities. He simply says, you know how I love you. And I think that's absolutely critical in terms of our restoration, in terms of us being transformed, in terms of us being made more like Jesus, is we don't appeal to our own love. Our own loves are, are foolish. Our own loves are, are imperfect. We appeal to his love. We appeal to his perceptions. We appeal to his knowledge. How many times have we gone to Jesus and said, Lord, I've figured out who I am. On the Enneagram. Lord, I have figured out who I am. I'm presenting myself to you according to what I've seen in Myers-Briggs. And DISC. And Colby. And whatever little uh, color thing you did on Instagram. (laughs) You like the color blue. Well, this says everything about your personality. And we take these things. And these aren't bad tools. It's good to learn these things about ourselves, but very, very often we take these processes by which we try to discover our identity and wrestle with our loves and wrestle with uh, how we're going to walk forward in life. And we, we take these things and say, yeah, this is, I think I figured it out. This is who I am, and, and I'm presenting this to you, Jesus. This is the love that I have for you. Sometimes we present those things to us and say, this is the, the failings I have for you, Jesus. Would you please fix me? Make it better. And I just think what Peter is doing here wisely is he's, having come through failure, realized that I actually did not have any idea who I was. I thought I was going to follow Jesus everywhere. And moments later, less than 24 hours later, I'm denying him. So I don't have any idea really who I am at all. I don't have any clue. The Enneagram has failed me. Right? And what Peter's doing is he's saying, Lord, how do you, you know, so so you lead me, you show me, you teach me. And he lays down that self-understanding, that self-identification, whatever tool that is that he used to think he was all that in a bag of chips. He says, that's that's failed. Who do you think I am? And really what Peter is probably doing is, is going back and probably hearing echoing in his, in, in his ears, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, Jesus, just, just would, you, <laughs> would you lead me based on who you know me to be? Don't lead me based on who I think I am. And that's something Jesus can work with. 
That's something Jesus can do. So there's this key uh, to uh, understanding. There's this key to our restoration that is leaning on Jesus' sovereign knowledge of our hearts, leaning on Jesus' sovereign understanding of who we are, and not trusting in our bent human perceptions. Because we just don't know. And so Jesus takes is, is seeing now this package, this person, Peter, who has got all of the bluster beaten out of him and saying, hey, I'm seeing somebody here that can be restored. I'm seeing somebody here that can be healed. Somebody here that I can use. Somebody here that I can do something with. And again, we go on and we notice another thing in these three conversations. Uh, do you love me? And it's very interesting, the words that are used here. Some uh, scholars would say that those words are just kind of used uh, interchangeably, and it doesn't matter that in some cases he's using agape, and in some places he's using phileo for those different types of loves. You've probably heard these sermons a hundred times where it talks about the different loves, but this love, agapeo, speaks of kind of an altruistic, selfless, uh, overarchingly generous uh, love And this love, phileo, speaks of more like a, a brotherly, a human, affectionate, uh, caring, uh, passionate kind of a, a love. And, and so we see the use of these words a little bit differently in the text. And so Jesus asks Peter this question, do you love me? Do you love me in an altruistic, selfless way? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you in a brotherly way. Uh, affectionate, caring way. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me in an altruistic, perfect, uh, selfless way? And Jesus says, yes, you know me. I love you in an affectionate, brotherly, <laughs> caring way. And the third time, so interesting, Jesus asks him this question, do you love me in an affectionate, brotherly, caring way? Peter says, yes. Oh, Lord, do you know that I love you in this brotherly, affectionate, caring way? And I think it's just, this is another part of our healing, another part of our restoration. Uh, Peter knows that his love is imperfect. He knows that his love isn't selfless. He knows that his love isn't pure. He knows that his love isn't altruistic. Jesus offers him this opportunity to bluster and proclaim the breadth of his love. Yes, I will die for you. Yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will do all these things for you. It's kind of offered to him to answer again in that sort of untruthful way about himself. And, and Peter resists that temptation. He knows himself. And I says, Jesus, I love you in my fleshly, perfect way. And Jesus asks him the question. Jesus capitulates in a sense and says, do you love me in your imperfect, fleshly, human way? And Peter says, yes, I do. I love you in that way. You know that I love you in that way. And Jesus will meet us and call us and commission us and invite us to serve us in our imperfect way, especially if we know our imperfect way is our imperfect way. This is another beautiful thing that we see in this restoration of Peter, this humble understanding of his humanity, this humble understanding 
of his imperfection. And you can imagine Peter just kind of like walking through this conversation. Like, Jesus, like, why do you keep asking me this? Why did you ask me this the second time? And the third time, he's grieved. He's seeing the connection. He's realizing Jesus is asking him three times, just like he denied Jesus three times. Uh, he's grieved by the imperfection of his love, but he still ends up answering with honesty and with truth and about his imperfection. And so we take from that that our calling into the journey as disciples does not begin when we've achieved perfection of love. Jesus doesn't call us and use us after we've got it together. In fact, uh, we, we don't start out sanctified, we don't start out ready, we don't start out trained, we don't start out knowing anything, we don't start out perfectly motivated. Those are all things we need to know about ourselves, that we are not perfect in those areas, but he takes us in our brokenness and in our messes and our imperfection, and he starts us out. Discipleship assumes a journey. We don't become disciples. You don't go to school once you've got your degree. You go to school to get your degree. You go to school not knowing what you don't know. You start your discipleship journey as believers. You start the missions call in your life. You start the call to ministry. You join the worship team. You uh, begin to learn about prophecy. You begin to pray for the sick. You begin to do evangelism. You begin to do the thing of pastoring and caring community. You begin to lead a small group. You begin to do the things of serving Jesus from the humble place of knowing that you don't need know how to do the things that begin serving Jesus. With a humble and teachable heart to learn and be transformed and to grow along the way. His perfect love is doing the work of, imperfect, of perfecting our imperfect and that's where Peter starts hey I love you I phileo you all over the place Jesus and I hope to get to agape someday I hope to get there someday I hope to figure this thing out and as it goes on with Jesus knowing that Peter knows Peter knowing I absolutely can't do this calling I haven't got this Jesus you've got this then Jesus is like, now that I know that you know that you can't do this, we can do this. <laughs> right? Now that I know that you know you can't do this, we can do this. We can do this thing. And he says this. He says, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so Jesus lays it out for Peter. He says, you have a journey of self-sacrifice ahead of you. You have a journey of serving the church. Uh, Jesus has taught Peter what it means to be a shepherd. The shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. That's in John 10. John 15, greater love has no one than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. And, uh, and he says, hey, your life is, is about to go to a place where you are absolutely not in control, Peter. You will be led to places you don't want to go. And Jesus doesn't say who's leading Peter to places he doesn't really want to go. Who's leading Peter to places where he doesn't want to go? 
Jesus is leading Peter to places where he doesn't want to go. Ultimately to follow, ultimately to serve, ultimately to, to love the church, ultimately to care. And at the end, this is the moment of commissioning. After saying all this to him, he said, follow me. And immediately Peter's mind goes back to John 13. Lord, where are you going? Where am I going? So that you cannot, you can, where I'm going to, it says you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards, that promise. Right? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Peter denies him, walks through all of the pain, down the valley, through the denials, meets the rooster. And all of a sudden now, Jesus is saying to him again, follow me. Follow me. And so for us, we take away from this this reality, uh, this truth that the incredible journey of following Jesus, the incredible journey of being disciples, the incredible journey of being called to ministry is absolutely 100% completely founded on grace. It is grace. It is not our own strength. It is not our own ability. It is not our own gifts. It is not our own power. We simply say yes to following. We simply say yes uh, to going. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been, and the Holy Spirit has fallen, the apostles have been preaching, Peter's preached this amazing sermon, 3,000 have come uh, to be uh, part of the church in one day, and in Acts 5.27 it says this, the apostles having been brought before the Sanhedrin and judged, rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Isn't that a kind of following? Is that a kind of following we're comfortable with? Oh man, that cashier did not uh, say Merry Christmas. They said Happy Holidays. I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> Who knows what the suffering is that's coming? Who knows what the challenge is that's coming? But, but wouldn't that be something if our hearts were like, man, I am so delighted that I'm worthy, that I'm counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. To give my life for him. To give my life. We look at Peter's life and where it went. This is a, an, an artist, uh, you know, 1278 or 1279 from an unknown Italian master. Uh, a story of the crucifixion of Peter in paint. And, and what we know from church history is that Peter followed Jesus. He followed Jesus um, through Antioch, through Corinth, through Rome, and ultimately uh, through years of ministry in Jerusalem, serving the church, interaction with the other apostles, interaction with Paul, um, ultimately arriving in Rome. And it says that in, in Rome, this is like piecing together the story of Peter's life from various of the early church fathers. It probably happened in 64 AD. Uh, but we have little pieces of it in Ignatius and Irenaeus and Linus and Eusebius um, and various other writers um, piecing together this story of Peter, probably in 64 AD, uh, just three months after 
uh, the great fire where it's you know the story Nero fiddled while Rome burned. This, uh, this fire that went ripping through uh, Rome. Peter was in Rome at the time. Three months after that, in the persecution of Christians that got deeper and got followed, uh, followed that, Peter was arrested and, and was put on trial and ultimately, uh, to the best of our knowledge historically, was crucified. But what we have reflected in that story uh, from uh, all of those moments uh, all of those little writers just sharing little pieces is that we think what Peter did when he was about to be crucified just said, go ahead and crucify me, but I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord, crucify me upside down. And they took his arms and they spread them out like it says in John 21 and they crucified him upside down. And Peter died, delighted to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so there's this question for us, I think. Simon, you, you can come up with the team. You know, we have, uh, we talked about it at the beginning uh, a couple of weeks ago. We often feel like there's a gap between um, our, our desire as people, uh, between what we imagine our lives to be and the ministry that we know that, that God has for us. We, we look at ourselves as broken. We look at ourselves as wounded. We see uh, the hurts in our hearts. We see our disabilities. We see the ways that we are uh, disqualified as people. We see the ways in which we, we cannot do and cannot be uh, who we think we are to be. And we think, I somehow have to bridge that gap and get to that place where Jesus can use me. What we see in the story of Peter is that the way that gap between our present and that future is bridged is simply in the knowing that we can't bridge the gap between our present and that future. All we get out of Peter here is humility. All we get out of him is recognition that he can't do it. All we get out of him is, okay, your thoughts about me, not my thoughts, are important. The name you've given me is important, not the name I've given my hope for for myself. The love I have for you is not like your love, it's the love I've got. That's all we get out of Peter. And it's that recognition of our brokenness that is actually what bridges the gap. If we can humble ourselves and acknowledge our imperfection, he makes it happen. He calls us. He walks us across. The absolute only key ingredient is Jesus' salvation. We need to know, we need to admit that we are saved by him and not by us. We're going to sing a song, a simple song, Mighty to Save. Um, we're going to just acknowledge that all of the power of salvation is His power. All of the power to uh, strengthen us for the ministry that God has for us, all of the power to love our families, all of the power to love our kids, all of the power uh, to love the church, all of the power to do the things that we're called to do, all the power to walk in the gifts is simply His. We need to be saved, and He is mighty to save.
he is mighty to save. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca. Thank you.